One, two, three, four. Screen time! Screen time! Screen time! Screen time! Screen time. It's my screen time too. Hello and welcome to It's My Screen Time 2, the podcast where two moms review the best and worst in children's programming, from Netflix reboots and YouTube shorts to Disney classics and Pixar blockbusters. We watch, you listen. Find out what you can tolerate watching for family movie night, what to avoid altogether, and what you'll want to watch alone voluntarily. I'm Deborah. And I'm Katie. And I have three kids. Tony is 12 and Libby and Nate are eight. And I have two kids. Jay is six and Kenny is three. They're pretty adorable, aren't they? They sure are. (laughs) We like to start every episode with a quick story about how awesome or occasionally awful our kids are. Because in addition to being witty and incisive pop culture consumers, we're moms too. So, Deborah, what have your kids been up to this week? Okay. First quarter of school is over, and Tony got all A's his first quarter of middle school. That's awesome. Yeah, he's really proud of himself, and I think that that is awesome. And Libby and Nate are getting vaccinated today, tonight. (laughs) That's so excited because Jay just did this afternoon, too. (laughs) Yay for vaccines for children. It's been so long. Now we just have to wait for Kenny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Have your kids done anything adorable besides getting shots this week? I'm not sure if this is going to come across on a podcast, but we are currently working on the difference between the pointer finger and thumpkin with Kenny right now. Jay, Jay's got it. He's mad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But right now, when Kenny wants to tell you that something is really good, instead of giving you a thumbs up, he just gives you, he just points his pointer finger up. And I love seeing it because I feel like he's either saying it's number one, like he's a really enthusiastic sports fan, or because sometimes he waggles it a little, like he's going to make a really intelligent point. Like, (laughs) excuse me, madam, I have something to say about this thing that I enjoy. (laughs) It's just really cute. And uh, one of those things that will obviously go away as soon as he masters the difference. So I'm enjoying it while I can. Nice. That's very adorable. Be sure to take a little video of him before he learns Thumpkin. Thumbs up. All right. Screen time in the news. Let's do it. So today we are discussing an October 27th New York Times opinion piece by Jessica Gross titled In Defense of Inappropriate Kid Movies. Guys, you know I love an article that reinforces my own opinions. I'm a big fan of Jess Gross's writing. I've been reading her stuff for a long time, so I was excited to talk about this on the podcast. So she confesses to allowing her seven and three-year-olds to watch classic films from her youth, like Ferris Bueller, Indiana Jones, and the 1991 Adams Family movie during like the hardest part of the pandemic. And she says that she noticed that her daughter had more questions and opinions about the older movies than she does about modern movies that are supposedly more age appropriate. She wonders whether we've sanded off what she calls the spiky edges to our kids' detriment. She summarizes Bruno Bettelheim's 
1970s classic, The Uses of Enchantment, The Meaning and Importance of Fairy Tales, and writes, quote, Bettelheim posits that the softening of classic fairy tales removed their value for children. The world is not a sunny place, and art that reflects only sunny outcomes does not help children deal with their own dark and rude impulses, which are universal. I found that to be really interesting and compelling. She goes on to talk about how kids face a glut of content made just for them, and parents that are also more involved in policing that content leading to overtly moralistic or educational fare that parents feel is better for their kids, but isn't necessarily more appealing to the kids themselves. What did you think of this article, Deborah? I totally appreciate her argument. I also like Jessica Gross a lot, and I always try to read her parenting columns. Um, I'm not sure that I agree that she's like overgeneralizing and saying that like, all movies now are totally saccharine and moralistic. And I don't agree with that. I feel like we've watched enough kid movies to know that some of them are legitimately scary and have some spiky edges and provoke uh, deep thoughts in our children's brains. <laughs> what did you think? I thought it was really interesting that the two examples of modern movies she cites are the most recent Adam's Family cartoon Mm -hmm. And the movie Shrek, which has like a whole host of other problems with it, namely that it's just bad and unfunny. So they were just like interesting choices to use to make this argument. And Shrek is like 20 years old. Yes, it's not really a yes. modern movie. <laughs> um. This is funny because part of her point is that parents should maybe take a step back from uh, policing what their children are watching. But one of my first thoughts after reading this was, I wonder if I can find some sort of listicle of borderline appropriate movies to watch with my kids. Because I feel like so often when we step outside of like the approved kids movie category... We step mm -hmm. towards things that, to my mind, are too violent. Like, mm -hmm. And that is the thing that I feel like I'm comfortable controlling that for my kids. Like, I don't necessarily feel like I am depriving them of any spiky edges by not showing them very violent content. So, like, too often it'll be like Marvel movies, and I'm just uncomfortable with that. And when I try to think of what would be the like Ferris Bueller, Indiana Jones equivalents in like my film watching past that I would ever show my kids, I'm just coming up with a big old goose egg. Like I can't think of anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We for a long time had to like filter out stuff that was too scary because Tony especially does not care for scary content, but we've pushed it a little bit over the years. And now like, if he gets upset when something is scary, like he can talk himself down and he's learned, like there is a formula to every plot of a movie mm -hmm. and it's just part of the storytelling arc. And like, there is going to be a denouement. <laughs> like, he is soothed by that if things get a little too scary so yeah but violent stuff I definitely like to keep that filtered out with gore 
that kind of stuff. Yeah. And mostly because I don't even like to watch that kind of content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And we are watching Apollo 13 with our kids, which I posted on our social media, but um, they're like surprisingly invested. I saw that. And didn't you write that you have also watched The Martian with your kids? We've watched The Martian with them a lot. But I think okay. we phased that in when like Kenny was maybe a baby and Jay was too young to really know what was going on. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is the first one where both of them are like into the plot and like tense about what's going on. Okay. Do you watch a little bit at a time or, or do you watch the whole thing? Because The Martian is long. Yeah, The Martian has probably been done in installments. I think we could probably okay. knock out Apollo 13 in two nights. Mm-hmm. I have not watched either one of those with my kids, and I think they would both like both of them for sure. I like them. Well, <laughs> sorry, Jess Gross. I know we're not supposed to think about things in terms of being educational for our kids, but I can't get out of that mindset. But I love that both of those m- movies are so focused on encouraging problem solving when things get difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, so definitely a lot to think about in this article. Um, it'll make me, maybe make me feel a little bit less guilty next time we turn to something that is maybe more interesting for the parents than the next My Little mm-hmm. Pony movie. Do we have any follow-up from our last episode? We took a week off, guys. Thanks for sticking with us. We talked about whether or not holiday movies or just holiday specials count as screen time in like the hourly log of screen time for the week Mm -hmm. and I came across a movie with Owen Wilson and um it's a Thanksgiving special and I just wondered if you have watched it and of course I'm like blinking on the name right now all right let me look it up free birds (laughs) from 2013 uh Owen Wilson and Woody Harrelson are in it what and it's about Thanksgiving yeah, it looks kind of funny. I might watch it and report back to you. I think you should. Episode. We're lacking in a good Thanksgiving holiday movies. Right? Right? I don't think of that. I mean, I think of like the Rose Parade and like football as being Thanksgiving content. Doesn't the Rose Parade happen at New Year's? <laughs> Isn't there a parade on Thanksgiving? Yeah, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. That's what I'm thinking about. Okay. 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 I was like, is my timeline that off? I thought it was after Christmas. Okay. No, you're right. No, I just don't have my parades very straight. Okay. Anyway, are we ready to move on to our real topic today? (laughs) Yes. What is our real topic today, Deborah? Today, we are talking about Clifford the Big Red Dog. It just came out on November 10th. And it's released in theaters and on Paramount Plus, rated PG. It's my perfect length of movie. It's an hour and a half. And it was directed by Walt Becker, who directed late career John Travolta vehicles, Wild Hogs and Old Dogs, as well as early Ryan Reynolds content, uh, like the movie Van Wilder. Most recently, Becker directed Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Road Chip in 2015. (laughs) Um, The movie was written by Jack Shearick, writer of the Smurfs movies, and it was based on the classic children's books about a giant red Labrador by Norman Bridwell, first published in 1963. 
There was previously a cartoon series produced by Scholastic in the early aughts that aired on PBS in the United States and the BBC in the United Kingdom. And in this movie, Emily accidentally adopts a puppy who grows enormous overnight. And she and her uncle, who's babysitting her for the weekend, have adventures across New York City as they have to protect Clifford and keep their apartment that doesn't allow pets. We picked it because we always like to be on top of what's new. And this just came out. And we're always interested in new adaptations of classic children's books. I think the standout recently has been Paddington, right? Like, who thought Paddington and Paddington 2 were going to be as good as they were? Like, I would never have pegged that. So I was looking forward to watching this one to see if they could work some similar magic. Oh, yeah. Paddington is so good. So what's your background with Clifford? Did you read Clifford books growing up? Did you read them to your kids? Hey, remember Clifford books from my childhood and I've definitely read a lot of Clifford books to my kids just because they're so ubiquitous because Scholastic I mean I think they have republished like the classics but then there's all these spinoffs of like board books and easy early readers and all different kinds of new adaptations of Clifford I kind of prefer the old ones which are a little bit harder to find. And I've never watched the show. How about you? This is perfect because my Clifford exposure is minimal. I maybe remember, I mean, I was dimly aware of Clifford as a kid, probably read a couple Clifford books in my life, but I don't think I've ever read a single Clifford thing to my children, nor have we watched the PBS show. So we were coming into this fairly blind. Oh, interesting. See, I think at our branch library, in the kids section, there was like, when my kids were pretty, when we're a few years younger, there was like a basket right at their eye level that had all the Clifford books in it. And I think that was just like a a go-to, which I much preferred to the Berenstain Bears books. Yeah. I, I read a ton of Berenstain Bears books growing up and I tried to steer my kids towards them. Um, and they just, they're super long. Have you read a Berenstain Bear book lately? Oh, God, yes. And they're so moralistic, speaking of. Yes. But also super long. They take forever. Don't read them before bed if you're on any kind of clock. My goodness. All right. But we are not here to talk about the Berenstain Bears, even though I obviously could for a long time. Basic question. Did you like the movie? I liked it. How about you? Oh, my gosh. I hated this so much. Oh, what's not to like? Talk about everything Jess Gross was warning us against. It's just a completely unearned tale about intense friendship that develops over the course of 24 hours and like a connection to a community that hasn't even been established. I don't there all right. As usual, let's delve into my psyche for a moment. I do not live in places for very long, usually not for more than a few years, Um, Mm -hmm. and I never have. Well, not since becoming an adult. So the whole basis of this plot line is that poor Emily is having a hard time fitting in in Harlem because they're from upstate New York and they haven't lived there for very long. A struggle I can relate to. 
but mm-hmm. they very quickly flip around to show her interacting very closely with all the shopkeepers in her neighborhood, all their neighbors. Like she's their favorite person. And right away, my little nomadic ears pricked up and thought that there's no way there's no way this neighborhood would have embraced this child so fully in what was supposedly a very short period of time and then she gets Clifford and the entire action of the movie takes place over 24 hours I just I don't know bonds don't form that quickly folks they don't oh I'm sorry so you were your disbelief was not suspended and we haven't even talked about the CGI yet oh my gosh oh my gosh (laughs) we'll get there but I just couldn't and I listeners we don't want to spoil how the story ends but it relies a lot on being embraced by your community and like being accepted for who you are that's a central tenet of Clifford I mean he's a huge red dog and it the it was just completely unearned like the ending speech just came out of nowhere it was I talk about slapping on a morality tale to a story that didn't earn it (laughs) yeah yeah. but tell me what you did like well I did I always liked when I was a kid the movies where the parents were away and something happened while the parents were gone and the kids had to solve it. And it was always like high stakes circumstances, mm-hmm. like adventures in babysitting, that type of movie. I liked the premise of this, like Emily Elizabeth's uncle is just like, can't get his life together. And he's the one in charge of her. And he lets her go into the pet tent and, um, I also liked like the magical element of Mr. Bridwell and all the exotic creatures. I don't know. I got very invested in the story. I wasn't really looking at whether or not it was a realistic premise. Like <laughs> I you mean, are? it is about a giant red dog. So I can see how maybe you would go into it with your belief already suspended. There were some things though that I didn't care for that were um just too stereotypical like the mean girls at the private school that Emily is going to they call her food stamp and just like that part is like beaten over our heads that like they have more money than she does and they're not nice but then it's never really I mean it's addressed a little bit but it's never really tied up because in a lot of other kids' movies, that would be the central conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just one obstacle that Emily has to get over. There is a funny, funny scene, though, where she like brings a giant bag of aluminum cans to school for a fundraiser. And all the kids are like, oh, my mom just wrote a check. <laughs> <laughs> so think about a few different ways this could have gone, right? Emily's struggling at school because of the Mm -hmm. income inequality and the kids are not nice to her. She gets a giant red dog that everybody loves, struggles with all of a sudden being the popular girl, and then ultimately learns how to be kind to everyone in the school. That would have been fine. Mm -hmm. Or like 
Emily gets Clifford and falls in love with him, but she's not allowed to have pets in her building. And it's all about warming the heart of her crotchety landlord. Also, great. Something about her ne'er-do-well uncle learning how to take responsibility, sort of like Uncle Buck style, that would have been fine. But instead, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, no, there's like a genetically modified food company that is involved. Mm -hmm, Why? mm -hmm. Why? Why are we doing this? Yeah, it had the feel at times like maybe it started out with like a very conventional script like you're describing and then it went through the Hollywood ringer and like some other people punched it up like to the maximum to get to that scene where they're walking through like the GMO building with like the mean sheep and stuff. Is there like a canon to how Emily gets Clifford in like the Clifford books? Had you ever read a, an origin story book? Oh, something happened in the beginning of this movie. I watched it with my kids and I was like, is that true? And Tony confirmed that it was how it was in the original book, but I don't oh. remember. Okay. Did you get the f- same feeling you get from like a classic Clifford book when watching this movie? Like, was it satisfying in that way? It was a lot more stressful because I feel like in the Clifford books, Clifford's size is addressed, but he's never like wrecking an entire apartment like he did Emily's house or like almost eating another dog Yeah, (laughs) or like sneezing and covering somebody head to toe in dog goo like (laughs) the movie just because of the medium I think was just like must much more like visceral Mm -hmm. what did you think well not having ever really read or internalized Clifford books Mm -hmm. um I don't know that I had anything to compare it to but I did I wasn't I wasn't feeling any warm fuzzies at any point while watching this (laughs) yeah and I think in the more of the original books like Clifford is a full-grown dog he's not a puppy and his role is often to like rescue Emily from some kind of peril okay if I'm remembering correctly they had a small moment of that in the movie and that was effective like how Clifford endeared himself to the neighborhood was by rescuing a resident from certain death Yeah, and that's more classic Clifford in my experience. Um, Speaking of the puppy ruining the apartment, though, there was a scene where they're in one of Emily's classmates, like $27 million New York penthouse apartment, and there's a grand piano in the corner. And I just kept thinking that there's probably a checkoff rule about if a grand piano and a giant dog appear in a film together, the dog must crush the piano by the end of act two. And that didn't happen. <laughs> I felt that was a little disappointing. Yet another missed opportunity. There was one scene, however, that I really enjoyed and it did not involve the dog at all. Or if the dog was in it, he was only in it very briefly. And that was like a big fight scene in a bodega. Oh my gosh, I loved that part. That was really clever. Best part of the movie. Just a lot of people fighting with like 
rubber spatulas and like at one point someone gets knocked down and then his opponent emphatically sprinkles salt on him it it was adorable and carefree and well shot and structured yeah that if I could just clip that part I would watch that again for sure that was really good even from the very beginning because like the good guys are blocking the door with all this stuff (laughs) the the bad guys like open the door and like they've blocked it but the door opens the other way so (laughs) the the bad guys just like walk right over their obstacle and like from there it just got funnier and funnier and it was just taking advantage of like the close space and the shelves full of like random things that you would find to fight with in that situation it was for me the standout highlight of the movie for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked that a lot. So let's talk about our cast. Uh, we had Darby Camp of Big Little Lies playing Emily Elizabeth. And we had Jack Whitehall playing her uncle, Jack Whitehall, who we have saw most recently in the Jungle Cruise movie. And we really liked him there, didn't we? I loved him there. I think that's partly why I liked this movie so much, because you get a lot of Jack Whitehall and he's very charming very endearing has a great screen presence I must know is he British I don't know I didn't look that up I assumed he was based on the Jungle Cruise and they do a weird thing in this movie where he has an American accent but his sister Emily's mother has an English accent and I was just like why if he's British like why doesn't he do an accent so this can be consistent but you know that was just One of the tinier nits I had to pick. (laughs) Yes. I really was just tickled to see Horatio Sands. One of my favorite, all-time favorite SNL cast members. And like, he was one of the bodega owners. And I recognized him, but it had been so long. It took me a while to place him, but he was very good. It randomly took me a while to place John Cleese. I was like, is that Mr. Feeney? Who is that? But no, John (laughs) Cleese played the mysterious Mr. Bridwell who gifts Emily Clifford and sets off all of the events of this extremely strange movie. Mm -hmm. And then Kenan Thompson, another one of my SNL favorites, plays the pretty incompetent vet. Underused, I thought. That was funny. Rosie Perez is in it. Also underused. A lot of people wanted to be involved with this movie, possibly because a lot of people have fond feelings towards Clifford, the franchise. But yikes, guys. I thought the casting was really good. I liked, I really fell for a lot of the characters, especially the rapport between Emily and her uncle. That was cute. Yeah, they were very cute. Oh, and I just remembered, wasn't she in the Christmas Chronicles movies? Oh, okay. And we liked I her mean... in that too. All right, let's get to it. Because you know I have some thoughts on this and I'm interested to hear what you thought of the CGI. I was willing to suspend my disbelief. In the very beginning, Clifford looks like a real puppy. So much that I thought they had done a trick with the camera like to film a real puppy and then color it in red. But it was probably just animated from the very beginning. 
this is so funny because I had the exact opposite reaction. I was on board with Clifford when he was a big dog, but I thought they really whiffed the animation when he was a puppy. Oh, okay. And like everything looked wrong to me. Um, It always looked really artificial in front of the backgrounds. And I asked Kevin about it while we were watching and he's like, well, it could be because it was filmed in ultra HD and we're only watching it and bloody blah, blah, refresh rate, bloody bloody blah, blah. I don't understand. So maybe you had a better viewing experience than I did. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I might not have been, I might, I probably wasn't being as observant. It's maybe. always, it's always tricky when one of the main characters isn't really there. How do you think the actors did in interacting with Clifford? I don't know what kind of magic they do in Hollywood studios to get that effect. Like is somebody standing there where the dog is acting like a dog? I don't know, but I thought it seemed realistic the way that they interacted with Clifford. Yeah, I was pretty on board with it once Clifford got to be his big size. And I'm sure like that would be where they focus their talents. That was the bulk of the movie. And maybe just they weren't quite as concerned with people thinking things did not look right when he was little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know. One major issue I had with the plot is that uh they can tell Clifford to sit and he just sits and he's like a brand new puppy yeah like a 10 week old puppy and I have a dog that has yet to learn how to sit Deborah you clearly just don't love Coco enough because <laughs> <laughs> she's normal size and she doesn't know how to sit yet <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm a failure <laughs> That is kind of an unrealistic expectation to put on kids. Like if you just love your pet enough, they'll be giant. Right. Um, just one more thought on like the plot and the look of the movie. What did you think of the OJ style news channel coverage of the chase scene? So they show like Clifford bounding down the highway. I It was very like reminiscent of the white Bronco driving across Los Angeles. I must have been wearing my mom hat and not my elder (laughs) millennial hat when I was watching that because my thought was, whoa, Clifford can go faster than cars. And that little girl is riding on him with no, no safety restraints, not even a helmet. So that is what stressed me out about the chase scene. (laughs) Well, do you have any other thoughts on Clifford before we move on to our evergreens? So does the uncle's housing situation ever get solved? Over the end credits, they imply that he got a job. So I assume that means that he found somewhere to live now that he is employed. Okay. Well, that's good. So should we move on to our evergreen questions? Let's do it. What adult movie or show does this compare to? I tried to think of the most recent example of a grown-up movie that I just watched and kind of like mentally threw up my hands to say what am I even seeing here what is happening where is logic Mm -hmm. so I thought uh Jupiter Ascending (laughs) did you ever see that movie no I haven't seen that it's a sci-fi movie and I'm trying to remember if it's a Wachowski siblings project or not it might not be but it's like Mila Kunis and 
Channing Tatum and he's like some sort of wolf man, but it takes okay. place in space. And then Eddie Redmayne is there like cackling about his space motives. And it it was just a big old piece of weird and a big piece of what? And I kind of felt the same way about this movie. But you know what? Now that I'm talking about it, I feel like I'm selling Jupiter Ascending short because <laughs> it was kind of weird and what in a good way. And I did not feel that way about Clifford. Mm-hmm. How about you? What did you compare it to? Uh, I thought of a few things, some really old ones, like Little Shop of Horrors and then Gremlins where there's like a non-human character who is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right. I like that you picked up on ones where the non-humans have like evil intent. What if we did like (laughs) evil Clifford? (laughs) That would be very terrifying. (laughs) Very terrifying. Were you able to cast the gritty HBO reboot? Well, I had the Jungle Cruise on the brain because of Jack Whitehall. So I thought it would be fun to do like Emily Blunt. And if we could shoehorn the rock in there somewhere, I'm sure that would up the charming factor and maybe annoy me less. But that's Mm -hmm. as far as I got. Mm -hmm. How about you? Well, I really liked this cast a lot. So it would, I would like to keep the cast. And then instead of Clifford, I'd like a movie version of Remember Wilfred. Oh yes, yes, yes. we used. I used to talk about that all the time. Um, Oh, Jason Gann is the actor who plays Wilfred, and he's like a figment of Elijah Wood's imagination. He's just a guy in a dog suit. (laughs) It's so funny. So I would have Jason Gann being Wilfred, but have the cast of Clifford have to deal with Wilfred in like more grown-up type scenarios that sounds funnier (laughs) than this for sure (laughs) was it better when we were kids I feel like we had a lot of movies about kids with non-traditional pets when we were growing up like there was one about a little girl with a monkey And then you had like Free Willy, obviously. And then later, this was after we were kids, but the one about the kids with a dolphin. Like there were a lot of kid plus animal movies because I feel like just before we were kids, the adult plus animal movies had kind of run their course. Mm -hmm. So then they started making movies for kids about that pairing. I'm sure it's 99% nostalgia, but I think a lot of those were better than this. Like, Free Willy, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a very good movie. What do you think? So I think I'm over-idealizing the time in which we grew up, but I feel like Clifford at that time, it was just some books and Clifford was a simple concept and I don't know how many books there were by the time I would have been reading them in like the early 80s and sometimes I get really frustrated with like late stage capitalism just like ekes every last drip of currency out of intellectual property because in preparation I was like looking at the scholastic list of book titles for Clifford and like 
they're just not even good anymore. Aww. They're just selling them because they have Clifford's likeness on the cover. Um, so I think it was better when we were kids because things weren't as over commercialized, although they were plenty commercialized when we were kids too. Yeah, just commercialized in a different way. I think there are definitely some properties that like they try to seize them and churn them through the machine of mm-hmm. modern TV and movie making and they're just not suited to the project. Like maybe Clifford just should have stayed a simple saccharine story about a little girl and her giant dog learning basic life lessons. Mm-hmm. Would you ever watch this alone voluntarily? Deborah, I know it was your ideal movie length. It was only 90 minutes, but I could barely make it through that. Oh, I, n- shoot. No, never. Sorry, Clifford. You? No. I would not watch it alone voluntarily, but I did watch it with my kids who all liked it. And when I, I feel like when I watch something with my kids and they're laughing at the funny parts and I'm laughing at the funny parts we all come away with it with like thinking it's maybe better than it actually is. Right. Um, but I think we all enjoyed it enough that I can see them because they like to rewatch stuff. So they'll probably rewatch it and I would totally sit down and watch it again with them, but not on my own. I feel like every movie that like crests that hill for you, you've got to breathe a sigh of relief being like, Oh God, no more Captain Underpants. Like everything you right. can add to the column <laughs> of things you can stand watching again and again is always a win. Right, right, right. Um, 10 seconds on whether this is good for our kids. This is a good example of how different our experiences with Clifford were because since my kids didn't have a solid grounding in Clifford other than being aware that he existed as a concept, they were not interested in this movie at all. Like I had to watch the last 30 minutes by myself. They just oh, weren't into it. They were wandering around. They were doing other things. Yeah, it was it was not a hit with my kids. But I do not think that that would necessarily be the norm, especially if your kids already know who Clifford is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with what with this. I thought it was fine for kids. Oh, yeah. I can't Uh, think of anything that would be like a red flag for parents at all. No. Oh, you know what? Back up to casting a little bit. I thought some of the casting was a little bit old fashioned, like like all the working class people were black, mostly like the cop was black, whereas like the corporate people were all white. So I just thought like there could have been a little bit. What about Emily's friend and his super rich dad? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's true. They were, the dad was like Chinese businessman. And he totally took Clifford in stride. Like they showed up in his giant apartment with this huge dog. He returns home and is just like, okay, there's a huge dog in my house. (laughs) There was, we didn't even talk about that. There were some cute scenes in that apartment. Like the little boy is like, clearly has a crush on Emily and the dad's like oh that's Emily and the dad is my kid is like oh my god dad you're embarrassing me and he's like oh no he's never mentioned you before (laughs) and then he's like should I tuck you in (laughs) something I've never done before (laughs) (laughs) that was really cute the dad like picking up on the preteen angst 
<laughs> there were definitely some small moments that rose above the material for sure. Mm-hmm. Ratings? Two? Oh, I'm going to give it a four. Oh, you're so nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, make of our extremely divided opinion what you will. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of It's My Screen Time 2. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. You can check our website at myscreentime2.com or find us on pretty much all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even Gmail at myscreentime2. Send us your show or movie suggestions, article recommendations, or general comments about the show. Our theme music was composed and performed by Deborah and her adorable children, and our podcast is produced by me, Katie. Tune in next time for more real talk about the movies and TV beloved by kids and tolerated by parents. Bye. Bye. Bye.